Hello and welcome to Sprogcast, a radio show all about pregnancy, birth and early parenting, hosted by Karen Hall and Mark Harris and supported by Pinter and Martin. This is episode 13 of Sprogcast with me, Mark Harris, and my friend, Karen Hall. Topic today, the microbiome. We're, we're excited to have uh, an interview with Tony Harmon, uh, author and filmmaker. Uh, interview as well with uh, a friend of the show, Natalie Corden, talking about her dissertation, which quite fortuitously is on the microbiome. Hey, hi, Karen. Hello, Mark. So a couple of things to start us off. Um, we should mention that Sprogcast is brought to you by our sponsor, Pinter and Martin, an independent publishing company specializing in pregnancy, birth and parenting, psychology, nutrition and yoga at pinterandmartin.com. Um, we're also um, in the middle of planning a really exciting event, Sprogcast Live, um, which is going to be at Ephra Space, their um, new event space in Brick- Brixton. Oh, yeah, I'm going there tomorrow for the opening. Oh, super. So that that's on 14th of July. So far, confirmed panel members are um, Natalie Meddings from uh, Tell Me a Good Birth Story and um, our Natalie, um, our midwife Natalie, who is really excited to be on it, I hope. <laughs> and we're still talking to other people panel members so we will but we've got some you know potentially exciting other panel members members so. yes so we're in talks and we will be updating people shortly and um, we will of course be using twitter and facebook.com slash sprogcast to publicize everything as usual so what have you been up to mark who me talking to loads of student midwives uh, in recent days which has been uh, really exciting um making a start on the book that's coming out next year so lots going on it sounds really cool um what are you going to be doing down at pinter martins well tomorrow night is the uh, grand opening of fs space i think michelle adon is going to be cutting the cord i mean ribbon and uh, <laughs> sorry oh, it's slow <laughs> i know i know it, yeah. been working on that for ages um, you missed it anyway no i think i'm going to be saying a few words um just a few yeah well i'll be doing my best <laughs> to keep it short be i'm excited about a venue being there you know for the birth community uh, a place for a bookshop um, like I say, I'm doing some workshops myself there from May. So, yeah, no, excited about the evening. Cool. I'm a bit envious. What have you been up to? I have been, um, I was in Worcester last week at the university doing my um, studying and um, staying in a beautiful cottage, which was ace. And then I did one of my study days on breastfeeding for non-breastfeeding counsellors in Litchfield. Where I didn't see a single bit of Litchfield apart from the path to the train station. <laughs> um, I'd really like to do more breastfeeding study days. These are um, kind of for uh, people working in birth and with parents who um, don't have a lot of um, in-depth breastfeeding training themselves and it's all about kind of how we talk about breastfeeding and why women stop and um, ways of supporting them and things like that. How long would a typical day be? I usually do 10 till 4 but obviously it's flexible but it would be perfect for like student midwives and people like that who have an interest. Do you have do you have the details of that up on your own website? No, my website is still under construction, but it's going to be okay. ace when it's done. Well, get on it. 
<laughs> I, I, staff are know, working on it. <laughs> what else have I been doing? I've been to, um, I'm on the MSLC, so I've been to, spent most of Monday doing that at a meeting um, for our local hospital. You might not be able to say, but what kind of things would, would you discuss on the MLSC? MSLC. Sorry? <laughs> the Maternity Services Liaison Committee. Yeah, I knew um, it meant that. We talk about... Um, kind of what's going on in the hospital improvements um the complaints get raised and things like that we look at statistics for um kind of different modes of birth and staffing levels and and those kinds of things um, and we sort of try to find ways of supporting the maternity department to right. make improvements so you talk about those things how much power do those organizations have in real terms oh there's a question i think it's not nothing i mean we have um, kind of research-based topics that we bring in and um, and we have lots of service user reps so you know mothers who have given birth at, at the hospital um, will come in and be part of the committee so right, but they, it doesn't fit within any hierarchy of decision making that's I guess what I'm getting at it contributes to it so we will make recommendations for example to the ward managers the supervisors of midwives and so on yeah how do you follow up on your recommendations? Um, we minute the meeting and then follow up at the next one. I, I think these things are fabulously, uh, they're very important, but they're, 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 the challenge is to avoid tokenism. Yeah. You know, well, let's let them meet, let's let them chat, let's let them make recommendations. I, I, I'm interested in auditing. It'd be very interesting to audit the recommendations over time and see what actions have, have, have come as a result of recommendations. Yeah, and I think that it would be hard to do that because a lot of it is about um, the staff hearing what the, the mothers say. Right. And just keeping their feet on the ground. I know, I get that. So, so there's an important function in that actually i was going to say advocating but but voicing uh, mothers concerns yeah. and and service users concerns that's exactly what we do and outside the formal meeting we spend a lot of time going to groups and kind of canvassing people's experience and and we go around the wards as well right i can see the value in that yeah yeah so well, that that's what i've been doing brilliant sounds good should we have a look at some of the stuff that's been in the news Let's do that. I, some interesting, some interesting stuff. Uh, I, I, I love Millie's article on uh, mothers denied cesarean section birth. Did you see the news story on the television or anywhere? No, I didn't. Um, so it happened to be on Friday morning. I was sort of staying overnight at the house of the person hosting the breastfeeding workshop I was doing. So I was there with another antenatal teacher um, when it came on the television and we were watching it sort of thinking oh that's just you know she was telling her story about how with her first baby um she'd um that her baby had got stuck right and her doctor her consultant she said had informed her that as she had an unusually narrow pelvis she ought to have a cesarean right. if she ever had another baby but it was never put in her notes this is what millie was writing about yeah so Millie was responding to this story. So when, when the woman was pregnant again, she kept saying to her caregivers, I want a cesarean. And they, they kept saying, no, 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 you can manage without. Right. And very sadly, her baby actually died. There are all kinds of issues that it, that it raises around, you know, so-called clinical judgments when it comes to um, dystocia in the birthing process, you know, getting stuck, if you like. 
I mean, there are all kinds of clinical uh, assessment issues that it raises. You know, in the old days when I started, they did something called a pelvimetry. And if you've heard of that. Oh, I have. Yeah. Uh, on the back of this, somebody was talking about. Yeah. It. In the old days, women would have a pel- pelvic study, uh, a pelvimetry after the birth to assess uh, diameters. You know, and, and that fell by the way, because, the you know, the pelvis is, is, is not uh, the rigid bony structure that it that it is when you're not pregnant, you know, because for the pregnancy hormones relaxing yeah. the musculature around the pelvis. I think I read some pel- um, some studies that suggest that supported squat increases the pelvic diameter when a woman's in the birthing process by up to 14 to 18 percent. So, yes, I've read something. You know, d- doing a pelvimetry after the birth of a static pelvis is no indicator, really potentially yeah. so and presumably that, one would have to be lying on one's back for that to be performed oh, i am guessing so yeah but i i think millie's conclusions are on the money you know that a, a woman given information then has the right to make a final choice in these matters um her headline that um what was it at any cost yeah. Oh, sorry, no questions asked. No questions asked. Yeah. I think that that did actually stir up a little bit of well, really, actually, you know, clinical healthcare professionals do have the right to ask a question about whether that's an appropriate thing to do. We are talking about surgery here. I think that's so, but then we get into a subject that we talk about a lot, which is that you know the the multi-levelled nature of communication the way that we communicate about these things and the presuppositions that we use in our language and our tones of voice and our body language are are crucially important. You know, it's one thing introducing a woman to the risks of major abdominal surgery and the likes. It's another thing to imply that her decision in some way um, reflects upon her intelligence or her right to make that decision Mm. uh, in the face of the information that's being given and I I think they are slightly two separate separate issues but they're so intertwined you can't separate them. So are you saying that if if she said I want a cesarean then the implications of that should be discussed with her but at the end it should still be up to her to still say, "I want to say." Yeah, and uh, and and I think she has the right to say, um, "I'm I'm happy having all the information. This is my decision." When the clinician says, "And can you outline why you've made that decision?" She says, "Well, I'm I'm choosing not to tell you." Yeah, and Millie does say that, doesn't she? She shouldn't have to explain her reasons. No, I don't think so. I I don't think so. And and her, you know, her explanation, if she offers it, even if it flies in the face of um the sensibilities of the clinician uh, her decision should should be the resting point for that mm. um very much so you know the the legal case and i'm forgetting the title of it uh the recent one last year in the case of the woman that had a, a macroscopic baby uh, uh due to potentially due to gestational diabetes who wasn't given the information about shoulder dystocia right you know, the, you know the case in question i don't i'm not familiar with it in the in the the findings of that case the the doctor actually admitted that she withheld that part of the information because she didn't think it was um she didn't want to include it because she didn't want to incline the woman towards a cesarean section yeah and the case found in favor of the woman because yeah. the baby sadly um 
you know, had had difficulties getting through the birth canal. And I think um, one of the things, you know, if you if you kind of look at the wider ripples of an article like this or a case like this, are uh, the that it adds weight more weight to that kind of school of thought that there are there are people in the birth world who insist that natural in inverted commas is is best and and would push a woman not to have a cesarean purely for their own agenda and i don't think there are that many of us out there. i don't think that's a thing no i i i i think it probably is still a thing in pockets of the community mm. you know and there are echoes of the Morecambe Bay recommendations of yeah. report that suggest that there was a, a inverted commas normal birth agenda at work yeah you know what they say you can't teach an old dogma new tricks <laughs> yes it's not my quote I think it's a, no, I know can't it's remember not. where it came from <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's too clever right I didn't say that. no I've read it somewhere too in fact, I think you've posted it recently on Facebook. I, I did. I think I did. The whole discussion around cesarean sections at, at the request, you know, rather than the demand of, of a woman has been going on as long as I've been a midwife, you know. But I, I really do think uh, when kind of talked out in the way that we're talking out, a, a woman's autonomy and right to choose for me is absolute. Yeah. You know, it's it's abs- absolute. So, um, yeah. So did you have a chance to read the um, report about stillbirth? Of course, I read the whole report back to front. All 141 and I, and pages. And I have an annotated copy right next to me. Well, excellent. You can explain it. No, then. I haven't <laughs> read the whole thing. Although so I just I... dipped into the key findings because I'm much less diligent than you are. It seems like the whole report is mainly about data collection. Yeah, yeah that. But I, I mean, it does raise issues about... Uh, what seem to be quite large differences in perinatal mortality rate, depending on where you live and and what your ethnicity is. Mm. And that raises a concern in my mind. It certainly poses a kind of a, a need for further investigation in those areas that a further, you know, investigating their reporting um, methodology and how they're doing it systematically. And then if, you know, if, if we find that that kind of distinction in the perinatal mortality rate is there, you know, we, it raises questions about uh, the quality of service and care that those ethnic groups and those so socially deprived, he says, in inverted commas areas are getting. Because if there is that kind of disparity, that needs looking at. So this is in keeping with, I think it's come out recently, hasn't it, that um, a new guidance for reducing stillbirth from NHS England um, but it says there are over 3,000 stillbirths in the 665,000 babies born each year in England and they've issued guidance addressing four key elements of care based on best available evidence and practice in order to help reduce rates of stillbirth so those four interventions are reducing smoking in pregnancy right enhancing detection of fetal growth restriction yeah. Improving awareness of the importance of fetal movement mm. and improving fetal monitoring during labour. Yeah. What are your thoughts, Mark? Well, the first one, my thoughts are, you know, we, we've spoken about smoking in pregnancy before and there are physiological changes in a woman that makes packing up smoking even harder than in the general population. You know, so my anecdotal experiences are of women avoiding soft cheeses. You know, they wouldn't even rub themselves with a nut, but they can't they can't stop smoking. 
they've struggled. You know, I, I think we probably need an, an expiration of vaping and pregnant women because the amount of women that over the years I've looked, been involved with in the community who have come in guilt ridden because they feel unable at this major transition in their lives to, do, to, 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 to let go of something that is stilling their stress in their, in their experience. Yeah. And there are physiological changes that make packing up even harder. So, so vaping, they maintain the nicotine hit, you know, and the impact upon dopamine and all the rest of it without the uh, combustible, noxious carbon dioxide, which is, you know, the main uh, issues, in my understanding, uh, with pregnancy. Well, that's an interesting hypothesis. More research needed. Oh, without doubt. When it comes to fetal monitoring, there's a problem there because continuous cardiotocograph monitoring, CTG monitoring, has, you know, been bashed in the kind of evidence for many years. We know that it's not a great method for monitoring fetal well-being uh, in the birthing process. So, Is that where you've got the belts? Yeah, exactly. Or you could you could have tel- telemetry, telemetry, which is yeah, you you still got a belt, but you haven't got a lead connecting you to a machine. So you can stay so, active. Yeah, some mobility. But you are always, unless the baby has a fetal scalp electrode applied to its head, which has its own issues in people's minds around an infection site on the top of the baby's head and all the rest of it, you're not picking up a reading of the baby's heartbeat directly off the baby. So you're always reading it through adipose tissue. So if you look at uh, I think Dennis Walsh has written about this uh, in the past. You know, the false positive rates of transabdominal fetal monitoring are, are quite, they're quite high. So it's it's not a great method for monitoring fetal well-being in the birthing process. So it does need looking at without a doubt. Hmm, interesting. I've found a, an article. I'll put that on Facebook before we move on, what what were the other two recommendations? More monitoring, um, so enhancing detection of fetal growth restriction. Yeah, and, and that raises an issue as well, because at the moment, you know, what, what goes on uh, in most areas is the measuring of the, the, fun, the fundal height with a tape measure. You know, and before we throw that out, as, oh God, I was doing that when I first qualified and it got thrown out. You know, that there is some evidence that if the same person is measuring the uterus um you know using the same tape measure so there's consistency of practitioner they understand how to do it there is evidence that that's successful but much of our maternity provision antenatally is fragmented so a woman will often seldom see the same midwife twice yes that seems to be very true yeah so Measuring the uterus is not to be dismissed, but having variable measurers is an issue because it interrupts. You know, the other thing is availability for scanning and the the effectiveness of scanning um, when it comes to measuring the real weight of the baby at various gestational ages. Mm -hmm. And the literature is still clear that there, you know, there is big margins for miscalculation Mm -hmm. um, when it comes to scanning. So I I think they're right in terms of those two areas being um, areas of, of uh, the need for us to pay attention. But, you know, I'm not sure how we're going to improve those areas. When they talk about the importance of fetal uh, movements, that's crucial. 
And that would always be the first thing I'd say to a woman. You know, listening to the baby's heartbeat in the antenatal, which the NICE guidelines suggest we don't offer routinely. Yeah. Uh, we do it for cosmetic reasons, but not for monitoring the well-being of the baby. Um, first thing I'd say to a woman is, how's the baby been moving? Because the, the woman has this unconscious process of, and conscious process of monitoring the baby's movements. And even if she's not necessarily conscious of the movements changing, the way her unconscious mind works, she gets a prompt that there's something not quite right. Yeah, people are very in touch with their babies. Very much. And that's an important emphasis and they're right it, it, it needs to be underlined to a woman that if the midwife uh, insists on listening to the fetal heart rate um, a, a midwife should be saying I'm not doing this uh, to monitor your baby's well-being I'm doing it because I, I I know you'd like to hear the baby's heart rate you're the monitor of the baby's well-being that's quite a strong message. I uh, yeah, I think well, I think it's an I think it's an important message, because it, it, a woman then um, uh, realizes that actually she she's the only one that from the inside out can monitor the baby's well being. Yeah. I think this routine listening in at antenatal appointments, which the Nice Guideline discourages, is it, it, potentially shifting the power when it comes to who's doing the monitoring hmm. it, it's it's the woman that monitors the baby's well-being not not listening in once every now and again with a fetal you know fetal sonic aid for 60 seconds and that has implications postnatally as well doesn't it for building the woman's confidence that she knows best for her baby without a doubt i tell you a midwife that ignores a woman saying there's something wrong and i can't put my finger on it is is you know, is naive. And, and even when you've eliminated all the things that, that, that could be wrong, and a woman still feels that way, I would always pursue some further investigation based yeah. on that intuition. Because the source of birthing power is inside a woman. And the source of monitoring a baby's well-being also flows from inside a woman. So even if it's just, I take, I take you seriously, and um, yeah. I will check back on you tomorrow or in two days. Yeah, or or you know maybe booking a scan or or never never assuming that it's God forbid neurosis or mm. over anxiety or never that in my opinion I would never ever make that assumption ever. Um, yeah, interesting stuff. So um, if we move on to look at our. Um, main topic of the day, the microbiome. Shall we have a listen to Tony Harmon? Yeah, get her on. Okay. Here with me this afternoon, I've got Tony Harmon, who's going to talk to us about the microbiome and all her research and film and book. Hi, Tony. Hello. Thank you very much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. <laughs> Great. That's nice and enthusiastic. Um, can you start by telling us a bit about your background? Um, myself and my partner. If I talk to, talk about we, it's myself and my partner, Alex. And we've been together 20 odd years. And uh, we started, we, went to, we met at film school and we started making films together. Before we had a daughter, we were making a horror film, actually, a psychological thriller. Um, and we thought we were, we were going on off in a direction making horrors. But then we had a baby and started being interested in um, childbirth and the whole issues and the politics of childbirth. 
So we met, so being filmmakers, we started making films about childbirth. So we made a film about doulas called Doula, and another film about um, human rights abuses in childbirth called Freedom for Birth. And then while we were making Freedom for Birth, we started hearing or started thinking about the science of childbirth. And uh, originally we, we went off on a track about epigenetics, which is a whole sort of I don't know, transformational um, and uh, kind of quite deep thinking stuff. It's all about kind of switching on, switching off of genes, um, which led us on to the microbiome. And then we made a film called Microbirth. And after making Microbirth, just lots of people kept asking us, um, I, we want more, we want more information about this. So we wrote a book. So um, that's us in a, in a nutshell. So it's, it's myself and my partner, Alex, so we're filmmakers, and we're filmmakers to the core, but now we've got a new string to our bow as authors. I've seen the film. It was really fascinating. Uh, thank you. It, it's a, it's, what's really exciting is that there's this new frontier of um, medicine and scientific research. The microbiome is a word to describe the community of bacteria, fungi, um, viruses, archaea, archaea and you know, microorganisms that live inside us. So as human beings, we are part human cells. We have trillions of human cells, but we also have trillions of bacteria and all these other microbes. And the microbes help the human cells to function. So it's a symbiotic re relationship. Um, we give these bacteria and all these other microbes a home, and they, they help us um, keep our bodies functioning and protect us from disease. And what scientists have discovered is that this bacterial ecosystem, um, the main seeding events and so the main founding of this ecosystem happens during childbirth. So there might be much some what they call prenatal exposure. So exposure during pregnancy um, from the womb and the placenta and from um, the amniotic fluid. Um, so it's small colonies of, of bacteria the baby might be exposed to. But the main seeding event, the, the kind of deluge of, of microbes, happens during childbirth. And that's what our film Microbirth explores. It's about um, what happens um, if a baby is born vaginally and then is breastfed. Um, and what happens if a baby is uh, born by C-section or is formula fed. Because there's difference in the, in the founding of their bacterial ecosystem, in the founding of their microbiome. And scientists are, are hypothesizing or looking at the link between what happens at birth and risk for um, diseases for babies born by C-section have a higher risk of um, developing um, asthma, celiac disease, um, juvenile di diabetes and becoming overweight or obese later in life. And they think, the scientists think that it's connected to the microbiome. So uh, once you start thinking about ourselves as a, a bacterial ecosystem, suddenly everything, it connects everything in, in, in your life. You kind of think, gosh, what if it's, the, it's down to the bacteria in our gut about um, how you feel, your emotions, your, whether you, your appetite, um, whether you've got a really strong immune system or whether um, you might have inflammation in your gut. And all these things are being linked to the microbiome. So it's just a fascinating new frontier 
for, for medicine and scientific research. So there's a huge range of different issues that are potentially linked to this theory. There's strong evidence there's a there's a gut-brain connection. So what happens in your gut is connected via bacteria to what happens in your brain. Um, and you know this is this is quite early stages of the of the research. So um, lots of different mental conditions, mental health conditions, are being linked to what's called a dysbiosis. So um, you're an altered gut microbiome. So things like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, MS, possibly some aspects of autism may be connected with a dysbiosis in in the gut not necessarily caused by but linked in some way mm. to something going on with the gut i mean there's all sorts of reasons what reasons for causing a, a dysbiosis in your gut and it could be um, you've taken a course of antibiotics say and that will, so antibiotics is antibiotic anti life anti-bacteria so if you take a course of um, broad spectrum antibiotics that kills off loads of your microbes inside your inside your gut Um, and the ones that it doesn't kill off they are resistant to those antibiotics and that they could then flourish because you've you've killed off all the other uh, microbes so there's loads of space left so you might get pathogens that that thrive or bacteria that you don't want to thrive thriving so not just antibiotics, but if you eat, um, there's evidence to suggest that processed food affect your microbiome um, using antibacterial products. I mean, not just antibacterial, you know, cleaners and soaps, but now you get, I mean, my, my partner bought a pair of antibacterial pants. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't want to buy any <laughs> you, you just went to Sainsbury's to buy a pair of pants. And the only pants he could buy in Sainsbury's were antibacterial. And knowing what he knows about the microbiome, is he is he reluctant to wear them? Uh, yeah, he is, but he just he just ran out of pants. <laughs> so so yeah, so there's all these things. There's anti antibiotics. There's um, processed food. There's a diet, our lifestyle, the fact that we use these antibacterial products, um, but also the way that we are born. So the so the increasing numbers of C-section. Um, and because this alters your um, your gut microbiome at birth, which could impact the training of the immune system happens during kind of the early stages of life. So from late in pregnancy, during birth and those first few months. And so that could have an impact on your long term health. I mean, it is emerging science at the moment. So um, and there's so much more research that needs to be done. Um, it's, it's like we've got a few pieces of the jigsaw and the research that's needed needs to give us more pieces of the jigsaw so that we can have the more definite answers and definite solutions to, to problems that are happening today. But the glimpses we're getting from the pieces we have of the jigsaw are amazing. I found the film Microbirth to be a, a very coherent and convincing argument for the concept of the microbiome. Um, but I found that it as it went on, the film seemed to get more and more speculative and it felt like it was getting a bit shaky. The science, I mean, the science is really strong regarding um, C-section and uh, increased risk for these certain diseases. So mm-hmm. increased risk for um, celiac disease, um, juvenile diabetes, um, asthma and um, obesity, overweight. So it's really strong. So there's been loads, loads of studies all around the world which says there's this link. And there's two competing hypotheses for this link. So, so to explain why uh, a baby born by C-section has is at increased risk of these diseases, 
uh, one of these hypotheses, which is one which we mostly explored in the film, is the, is the microbiome. So dysbiosis in the microbiome at birth impacts the training of the immune system, which has lifelong health consequences. Um, the other theory is epigenetics. So the stresses and, and pressures of vaginal birth switches on certain genes that are needed for lifelong health. And if you're born by C-section, th those stresses and pressures are different because you're not born vaginally. You're not squeezed through the birth canal. Mm -hmm. you're, you're kind of born, lifted out of a, of a woman's abdomen. So we're saying that the, the mode of birth sort of primes the human system optimally. That's it. Beautiful description. When I say there's two, I mean, that, they're the two sort of really strong hypotheses at the moment. And it could be, and it probably is, a combination of both those together. And epigenetics is a really emerging field, and so is the microbiome. And it's, and I mean, it could be something else altogether that kind of also factors into this thing. And it's not just the birth, it's about how infants are fed. There's scientific research showing that it alters the baby's microbiome. But it could be you know, 10, 20, 40 years into the future, that we have definite conclusive proof that by altering the baby's microbiome, this affects this certain gene or that certain gene. So we've long known that not breastfeeding alters gut flora in, in dramatic ways. It seems like this is more of a more drilling down into how it alters it and what the consequences of that might be. Exactly. I mean, the thing is, because the only way really to find out at the moment, there's my, so most of the studies, most of the research is done on animal studies, and humans are complex animals, um, and so they, I mean, there's there's epidemiological studies. So so you look at a cohort, so a group of similar aged people, and follow them, follow them for a long time, and and you look at the particular health conditions that that come about, um, and then or you look at animal models. Um, but the ideal thing would be to experiment on pregnant women, but not many. <laughs> when, when you say the ideal thing. <laughs> well, the ideal thing would be to find out definite answers now. Yeah, of but course. obviously um, you're not going to get ethics, approval, uh, ethics no. committee approval for experimenting on, on pregnant women or, or experimenting on women about to give birth. So it's just really difficult to have definite long-term proof. I mean, you know, the research is just starting to show this and so within the next 5 10 20 years the scientists we interviewed were saying yes we we're going to be much closer with every year that passes they used some quite strong language um in the video like talking in terms of pandemics and i think one scientist um, referred to sending our children out into the world of disease with their shields down it sounds quite scary the thing was with with the Microbirth. It's a film, and we wanted it to be dramatic because that's the only way to raise attention to this this issue. The scientists we filmed are very um, top level scientists, and they're very well respected. So you've got um, Dr. Martin Blazer, who is the director of the Human Microbiome Project in New York University. He's one of the the world's foremost experts on. Um, on the microbiome and so he has his own theory called missing microbes and that each generation we're losing um, species of bacteria and some of these species are what's called this is his theory the the keystone species so they are um, they affect other species of bacteria in your gut and these could be critical in protecting us from disease so if you lose these species from the way we're born or from um, formula feeding or c-section or antibacterial products or antibiotics or, or poor diet we never get them back and so sort of generations into the future 
we might be more um, susceptible and um, to a pandemic. Mm. And that's, I mean, that's like big stuff. That's like epic stuff. That's that's like humanity in crisis stuff. It is. It has a very big impact. And, and that's the point of of putting it in a film because that's we wanted it to be talked about. We wanted it to create waves. We wanted to create headlines to raise awareness. And it has sort of um, built and built. I noticed in the last few weeks a lot more talk about things like vaginal seeding. And one of the things that we we looked at in, in microbirth is um, Dr. Dominguez Bello's research, and she's also from New York University. So she is a micro, microbiologist looking at uh, the what happens with uh, a baby's born by C-section when compared to vaginally. And she's noticed that there's a big difference between the microbiome of babies born by C-section um, because they their first bacteria to arrive during the birth process comes from the air of the operating theatre and is likely to originate from someone in the in the operating theatre, from the skin of someone in the operating theatre, most likely not the mother. Mm-hmm. So the first founding bacteria for a baby born by C-section is likely to come from someone standing in the operating theatre. And that might not be beneficial to that baby's lifelong health. This is her hypothesis. So she thought, okay, what if you gave back the bacteria that baby would have received if it had been born vaginally? So she thought, if you take a a swab from the mother's vagina prior to surgery and then wipe the baby with it, with the swab, as soon as the baby's born by C-section, that will help restore the baby's microbiome to what it would have been if the baby had born, been born vaginally. So that's her research. So it's, so it's swab seeding. It's, it's using a kind of a tampon-like um, swab inserted into the mother's vagina prior to the surgery and then wiped on the baby's um, mouth, face and body after the birth. And her, her research, even though it's a very small study and it's just early indicators, but it's but her research is suggesting that does partially restore the baby's microbiome so that it looks more similar to vaginally birthed babies. The thing is that it only partially restored the vaginal microbiome because you're kind of taking the swab from the vagina. There's Vaginal birth is usually messy and it's brilliant that it's messy because then the baby gets exposed to um, the, the mum's faecal matter during the birth process. And that would transport for some of the mum's gut microbes to the baby, which, again, helps with the colonisation of the baby's gut microbiome. So with, with um, Dr. Dominguez Bello's um, swab seeding research, it could be a way to partially restore um, vaginal microbes, but it doesn't get over the fact that there might not be any epident- epigenetic changes because mm-hmm. the baby hasn't been born, been through the stresses and pressures of vaginal birth. Yeah, it sounded like the process was an important part of it. Yeah, exactly. So, well, we don't know. That's that's what they think. That's what the latest indications. It's 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 part of the microbes, but also part of the processes at the same time. So it's so it's exciting that the media have seized on this, or some of the media have seized on this. Yeah. Because it means that this raising awareness of this as a, a possible solution in the future. It's, it's it's research at the moment. I should stress it's research, and she has very strict um, inclusion criteria within her research. So things like. Um, within her research, it's electives cesarean only. The mothers are screened during pregnancy to make sure that they haven't got um, any harmful pathogen, group B strep or HIV. Um, and mothers are of a certain age. And, and so there's very strict criteria. If a mother was to have an emergency C-section, it's going to have be a different 
experience completely than you know than a elective cesarean situation yeah I'm just thinking about the individual mother going in for an emergency cesarean in whatever situation she is. It seems like one more intervention. I mean, it, I mean that's the thing. It could be, so the swab seeding could be a possible solution for whichever type of um, C-section. Obviously, the, the, the birth, I'm saying in the future, not now, because it mm-hmm. hasn't been researched and, and there needs to be some sort of protocol. There needs to be kind of guidelines. Well, I wanted to ask you about that because I think that the media attention has been not that positive. Um, I think there was a there's a paper by the BMJ which which raised awareness that if the mother isn't screened during pregnancy for these potential uh, pathogens, then there is the potential for those pathogens to be tr- transferred to the baby through the swab seeding technique. Um, and it's for some mothers, some mothers aren't right for this technique. Yeah. Um, because they might have um, potential pathogens um, or it might just be an emergency situation and, and um, it gets in the way. And the most important thing is obviously saving the baby and, the, um, and making sure that the mother's okay. The media have seized up on the potential negative effects, but actually have overlooked the, the idea that actually, if with this swab seeding technique, the baby is still receiving the same microbes they would have got had they been born vaginally. They've skipped a logical step. Yeah, and and they're just seized on the idea that there are risks. Is there a danger that um, this is going to be picked up on um, in the way where women are asking for it and midwives or hospital protocols or whatever are not ready for it yet and so it's going to be kind of dismissed as yet more kind of birthy nonsense? If I was going to have another baby I would want to do this technique providing that kind of you know I'd I'd be screened during pregnancy and I would be fully aware and uh, make all my care providers fully aware that this is what I wanted because I feel really strongly that that we all need to be raise awareness of this and to look at possible options yes there is a danger of, of midwives not being ready for it but actually midwives need to be ready for it because this is coming this is something and the research is there, but the protocols and the practices haven't caught up yet, but they will, and it needs to be accounted for. Surely that every single mother has the right, if, if she learns about the microbiome and, and then the difference it could make to her baby's long-term life, then her choices and her wishes need to be supported and the, and the practices and the protocols and everything else that surrounds our maternity systems need to catch up with it. For example, so um, skin-to-skin contact. I mean, that's a brilliant, immediate skin-to-skin contact. It's a brilliant, you know, transfer of, of microbes from mother to baby immediately. Um, and the, the more the baby is touched, the more the baby gets microbes not from the mother, which may or may not be helpful. So every time the baby is touched within the first, you know, couple of hours by tagging and cleaning and, uh, I don't know, adding drops of whatever or just kind of being wiped over this these are kind of these may or may not be helpful to the baby i mean but i would love for the maternity system to look at look at the the first contact within the first couple of hours um to have so that the magic hour of the bubble that surrounds the mother and the partner and the baby is protected because Mm. that's a fantastic opportunity for microbial transfer and because the mother and the father and the, or the mother and the partner are going to have the same microbes at home, that, then that would be beautiful for the, for the baby to be exposed to those microbes. The more research and the more pieces of the puzzle that we have and that are kind of put together, the more answers we will have. 
but this is this all the research is pointing in one direction that the optimal way to to seed and feed a baby's microbiome is ideally vaginal birth where possible uh, immediate skin-to-skin contact and exclusive breastfeeding for as long as possible that's the message which i would love to communicate and shout from the rooftops and anything else that gets in the way with that could potentially be interfering the baby's lifelong health. So it's adding weight to what we're already saying about mode of birth and feeding and skin to skin. This is the scientific research that supports everything that midwives already know. So in the future, I can see that, that hospitals and maternity practices take into account the baby's microbiome. It, it could, I don't know, it could have major ramifications for the baby's lifelong health it could but we at this stage we don't know but what's the there's no there's no harm providing that the mother's microbiome has been tested and um is proved negative for pathogens i mean i'm saying this i'm not i'm not a doctor but dr dominguez bellows um, swab seeding research she's indicated there's no negative there's because the baby is just getting the the bacteria that they the baby would have got had they been born vaginally. Thinking about the the potential risks of it are more in terms of getting your head around how you talk about this with individuals in situations where perhaps they can't make these positive decisions for whatever reason, or they, you know, they are they do have group B strep and so it can't be done. The, the seeding can't be done, and how that's going to affect the way they feel about their birth. I think for me, it's it's like the breastfeeding formula feeding thing. You know, we've, we've got so much evidence. We don't need evidence to tell you that breastfeeding is the way that babies need to be fed. But to actually go out and say that is very hard. I've got this thing about guilt. And I think not guilting mothers is getting in the way yeah. of, of helping people. And I don't know kind of how to do this. But just we need to get past the not guilting mothers about those not being able to formula feed or those that aren't able to to have a c-section I mean I've, I had a c-section and I've I had to, I formula fed and I think it's just kind of trying to get past the guilt yeah it's the individual versus the global message yeah and and are you living a microbial life yourself we are trying to um I've just been you know I've just been away and stayed with my in-laws and uh, it's very difficult to to say to your <laughs> to, <laughs> I can imagine um actually we we're we're having kefir and yogurt and uh, we're not eating, we're cutting down on gluten and we're eating veg, plenty of veg, fresh vegetables and we don't eat processed food food anymore. Um, a, a plus, lots of kind of plus, we want to do gardening because that's really good and we'd love to get a dog for the next week. <laughs> All <of> those, <laughs> so we're, we're trying, we're, we're trying to, to, to test ourselves and um, to see what works for us. Um, and we, well, we're talking to lots of different scientists. So we've been filming different scientists and lots of um, amazing stories of case studies of people who are living microbial lives and have made a difference to particular diseases they've got. So, yes, that's what we're investigating right now. Interesting. Well, it's a journey. We, we feel as though we're on a journey. And I don't yeah. know where this journey will end. But right now, it's brilliant. Okay, so the film is Microbirth, and that's available online. It's available online on Vimeo, and it's also on DVD and our website, microbirth.com. The book is The Microbiome Effect. Yep, available from uh, Pinter and Martin and Amazon and all other uh, books stores. Thank you so much for talking to us today. It's been really interesting. Um, thank you for today. It's been fun. Thank you for your questions. And uh, yes, let's do this. 
So that was interesting, Karen. I said this repeatedly during the interview, didn't I? It's a big subject. Yeah, and it links to another big subject, you know, epigenetics. It does. And I have to say that the epigenetics was really hard to get my head around, whereas um, the microbiome um, discussion makes sense to me on a hypothetical level. Yeah. Well, you, you, you're well versed in the breastfeeding literature, of course, which is, uh, you know, which is mountainous. Mm-hmm. And we've known for a long time that skin to skin has an impact on the microbiome. Yeah, so we've got a really sound basis for saying, um, for, for for supporting breastfeeding and skin to skin, um, for precisely these reasons, I think. And so, what I found a bit frustrating about um, the book, the microbiome, Tony Harmon's book, is that it just kind of seems to be, um, on the one hand, going very much down a theoretical, speculative route. And on another hand, other hand, I don't know how many hands we have for this, but um, on one of the other hands, saying, you know, just sort of taking away the focus on what we already know about the importance of breastfeeding and skin to skin. Yeah. And, and I, I, I've been speaking to quite a lot of uh, student midwives, maybe even hundreds. And when I asked the question, how many of you routinely see a, a woman being offered skin to skin after a cesarean section? That appears to be very rare. Do you know, I was actually quite surprised by that. I just thought that it was a thing that happened because no. the evidence for skin to skin is, is well established. No, it's not a thing that just happened. Call me naive. Yeah, you're naive. <laughs> Apparently so. <laughs> it seems to me that with all that body of evidence, the weight of uh, our attention should be towards encouraging skin to skin, probably delay core clamping because all these things become enmeshed in many ways uh, and breastfeeding. You know, that's where I want my focus to be because the evidence seems to be weighty there. The re- In the reading of the book, I was impressed with how it's written. Yeah. Uh, it's very readable. What concerned me was that what we have is fledgling science, emerging science, um, that will, I, I, I potentially will become big issues in the future, but we're, we're very early on in the science of it. Yeah. And I think too much emphasis is put on look uh, this is what might be happening based on these fledgling studies a lot of them animal studies by the way Um, these this might be happening and of course we can't say for sure we don't know for sure it's early on in the evidence but that not much emphasis is put on that a lot of emphasis is put on pandemic yeah you know um, could be affecting lifelong health all of these things concern me and i you know can i recommend the book it's a good read uh, i would never withhold any information from a woman for fear that some would be guilty or some would make a, an uninformed choice i just wish the book had more of um uh, a balancing flavor to it you know maybe more input from people that actually actually don't see it as in quite the same way as the authors of the book see it so that I could balance that up a little bit do you, do yeah. you know what I mean I do and we've posted a few um, more skeptical articles on our Facebook page haven't yeah, we there's a great recording on there of uh, the BMJ a, a, a pediatrician just yeah. saying exactly what I've just said actually yeah. is saying look there are issues uh, with the microbiome and we don't know we know that a baby that's gone through the vaginal canal uh, the birth canal rather <laughs> 
seems to have a different microbiome after so many weeks uh, than a baby that's been come out of the stomach. But not on the basis of very many babies. No, exactly. the, the studies are so small. And exactly. I don't want to be a denier, but no. I do not want to see policy made on the basis of tiny studies. Def definitely not. And I, I raised it at a student event this week and I, I mentioned what could be some of the issues. And some students says, well, what about group B strat? And then, a you know, very they're all very intelligent, but then a very articulate mid student midwife on the front row said, well, hold on a minute. If we're not going to seed on the basis of there might be group B strep there, we're not screening every woman for group B strep. So and even if we were... Exactly. It might not be there at the point that the baby was, but all those things. So she was actually, it was a balancing factor. So for me, I don't want to be a denier. I want my mind open. I want to yeah. be open to new evidence coming in. On the other hand, I don't want to see um, people responding to it in quite a fundamentalist way and saying, I must do this. Otherwise, my the future of my child's health will be in question. And that, I think, I is the consequence of using words like pandemic. Yes, without a doubt. Having said all of that, Karen, if a woman reads the information, decides she wants to do it, well, then I heard one case uh, this week where a student was telling me that a woman wanted to do it and the medical staff refused. So we're going back. We're back to Millie and no questions asked. And the doctor on the recording says he same thing. He says a woman, you know, should have the right to choose once she's had the information. But a nuanced uh, thing to consider is that if a baby has been seeded and some of those changes in the baby that you might look for uh, in the presence of an infection, like a, a slightly raised temperature and all those kind of things, they will probably be responded to with more alacrity. So the baby might end up being more likely to get an antibiotic, which would, I, I'm guessing, have an impact on the microbiome anyway. Well, that's certainly the... A big part of the theory. Yeah, exactly. And he was encouraging women that if they do seed and if they do feel that they had to do it covertly, any changes in the baby, it should be openly acknowledged that they had seeded. Yes. And that's one of the things that Natalie says. Yeah. Well, we'd better hear her. Yes. So this is our strident student midwife, Natalie, um, <laughs> doing a dissertation on this very subject. Let's have a listen. So I'm talking to Natalie again at last after how many episodes, two or three episodes we haven't spoken to her. It's really nice to speak to you again. Hi. Hello. So you're in the middle of writing your dissertation. I am indeed in the, in the midst of paper and photocopies and endless tabs on a computer. And it happens to be on the topic that we're discussing this month. It does. I've been I've been uh, looking at the uh, microbiome now for quite a few months and it's it's. Uh, research coming out day by day that's what it feels like there's just more and more stuff that's um, filtering through you described it to me the other day as the new frontier yeah it's sort of I mean I've even sort of like talked about it in my dissertation as uh, you know it's I'm likened it to space travel because it just it just feels like something that's you know otherworldly how, how are we going to comprehend all of this so what's the um focus of your dissertation or is that a bad question uh it's a good question i it's i've been looking at the sort of um the factors that sort of lay the foundations for the infant um intestinal microbiota i started off thinking yeah yeah this is this is going to be you know interesting and i i, di I didn't realize how 
big a topic it actually was. Mm. Um, so, you know, I started looking at things that were exogenous factors. So I was looking at sort of like mode of delivery and I was looking at um, uh, you know, antibiotics in labour and, and things like that. Um, and then... Obviously, I, I couldn't stop at that because I had to really look at the the endogenous stuff. So the whole sort of antenatal microbiome sort of, you know, flooded flooded out. And so I've I've read so much stuff. Yeah, so it's um it's been a really interesting process working working through some of the things and also looking at it from a midwifery perspective as well. So do you think the midwifery perspective is different to the kind of science perspective that we've seen on films like Microbirth? Um, yeah, I think so, because I, th I think we're, we're trying to think how we can actually, you know, help women with this, you know. And when they go into the science of the sort of like maternal diet and talking about um, high polyunsaturated fats affecting the baby's foundations of its intestinal um, barriers, you know, you think, wow, how am I going to help women with this? Because we, you know, we talk about having a healthy diet, but we don't go into if you eat loads and loads of fatty products you're going to do this you know it's, it's really difficult to think how we're going to sort of like help women so yeah that's difficult do you think the science is ready for it to be presented to women as something they need to consider i don't i think we're running we're running and we don't we really need to sort of like work out how it's going to work for women because i think that's the point if we sort of just sort of lay this all out and say oh you know it's your diet it's the way that um your metabolites cross the placenta into the baby and you know we're we're almost sort of uh, giving them information that I, I can't comprehend it. So I don't know how all women are going to comprehend it. It's really interesting when you think about the way we talk about language use and giving information to women. Speaking to Tony Harmon, one of the things she said to me, basically she's saying it's a bit like with the breastfeeding. You, you can't not tell people about risks of, of not doing this. Yeah, and I, and I totally get that. Obviously, we, you know, we do that with term, in terms of sort of like risks of smoking. You know, we talk to women and, 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 and we lay it out there. We don't talk about individuality in that. We just, we just know what, what smoking does. But even in that, I mean, sometimes we don't go as far as what we could because we could talk about the, the placenta more and and we could talk about growth restriction and things but we, we don't really do that it puts individual women once they have this information i think in a, a quite a difficult position because we're talking about I, in fact we're almost talking about going back generations aren't we I can remember my tutor saying to me we, what we don't know is the implications of um the impact on a woman woman's breast milk if she wasn't breastfed herself and this was like yeah. years ago she's wow. saying this to me or ahead of her time was Maura yeah <laughs> yeah that's amazing isn't it that's right I mean we're we're opening up a whole new whole new frontier you see there you yeah. go whole new frontier indeed so what are you going to be saying or concluding do you know yet um well I think I'm really sort of like moving towards the sort of what the uh, initial sort of colonisation and sort of like bringing it back to sort of skin to skin again and the breastfeeding. I mean, we we promote, obviously, we, you know, we're UNICEF, baby friendly, and we do the initiation in the hospital. We do the skin to skin contact. And, you know, and I don't think all babies get skin to skin, even though that's what we aim to do, you know, because, again, that's education, again, that women, you know, don't really understand what that's for. And in terms of in, in theatre, I mean, I know there's been a lot of movement towards it happening in theatre, but 
you know i i haven't witnessed it myself that's interesting you say that because it's it is one of those things that seems from my perspective to be so generally well understood and accepted that this should happen Mm. But obviously, I've, I don't have the clinical experience that you have. In, in, well, I'm only speaking from my own sort of, you know, what what I've witnessed. I mean, yeah. it, you know, it's happened when um, women have said that's what they want, but it's yeah. not a general occurrence, not something that we just do. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm sort of, I think I'm leading back to sort of like the the breastfeeding, the skin to skin, and or 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 the maternal sort of diet and education in that respect so i suppose i'm looking at either end sort of like the, the antenatal and the postnatal and yeah. the sort of like mode of delivery thing i'm sort of like trying to step away from because there's just so many factors that affect the babies when it's born it, you know even a vaginal birth you've got all of the things about ru- a rupture of membranes you know how long the baby's in contact with the you know the vaginal uh, secretions it's massive so uh, and say like use of use of antibiotics that's used in in in, in you know in normal uh, vaginal deliveries women have antibiotics because they've had um, you know prolonged rupture of their membranes. Mm. So what what are those antibiotics doing to the baby? There's just so much, isn't there? There are so many little details. It, it's almost creating a standard for a perfect birth that's going to be absolutely impossible to achieve. And I and I feel really feel for women that sort of like feel like. You know, they sort of see this sort of uh, the seeding and think, oh, wow, that's, you know, I'm going to fix the yeah. baby's microbiome by doing that. I'm, I'm going to fix the baby. And, you know, I think it's a little bit cruel to think that that's a, that's a way to do that. And really, we, we should maybe sort of bring, bring it back to sort of the early colonisation. It's it's um, the continuation of breastfeeding that's going to provide that immunity and the support to your baby's uh, health, you know, its future health. That's where we're going to... Yeah. We're going to make the biggest impact. And the thing is, we've got really good evidence for that. Exactly. We've got huge evidence for that. That's why I'm going off on a massive tangent because I'm like, <laughs> this is where the evidence is. You know, yeah. I'm an evidence-based practitioner. I'm not, I'm not some, you know, I'm not going to read one study and say, yes, okay, let's do it, which yeah. is almost what the vaginal seeding is. So it's, it's one study that's there and it's almost like yes so we'll you know we'll all do it and as much as I love women-led movement and I love women to stand up and say you know I want to do this I'm not sure whether there's not the evidence there so we need loads and loads and loads and loads of research yeah that's where we're at at the moment with this I think yeah for me that's where we're at I, I don't think everybody necessarily agrees with me yeah the thing is, I mean, there's not there's there's um, guidelines being produced in different trusts for the seeding. It's really current. The RCAG's made statements on it, and it's it's just it's because it's in the media, isn't it? It really is. Yeah. So I, I, it's a little bit worrying, really. And every time I say the word microbiome at the moment, people will start pulling horrible faces at me. Why is that? Because they think I'm talking about the whole swabs in a vagina, and I'm and I'm not. <laughs> I'm like, no, 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 I'm not. I'm talking about... (laughs) They think that you're jumping on a bandwagon. They do. (laughs) They do. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm the opposite. I'm the opposite. I'm sort of saying we need to sort of work on this and work on that and stuff we've already got the evidence for. Let's do that. (laughs) Wow. So what happens next? Where do you see policies and things like that coming? Is that ever going to (sighs) happen? I don't know because when when things are, w- are women led and they, and think what's happening as well there's sort of like blurred lines between the seeding and the natural cesarean and trying to make cesarean more you know more gentle or better for the baby I think there's becoming sort of like a blurred 
sort of lines about that as well so yeah. when people are trying to implement sort of natural and more gentle cesarean and better recovery for women from cesarean this is almost sort of like blurring in and it's yeah. almost getting sort of put in this part of the package deal and I, I yeah that that worries me a little bit so tony Harmon was saying that she she wasn't advocating just everybody just does this if they find themselves mm. having the baby by cesarean but um you'd need to be tested for things like group B strep and what have you exactly I mean the GBS we don't have um test testing in this country so um you know as a general um so we need to do that and also it's almost like who's gonna who's gonna do this because if if the if the midwives uh, are going to do it and be, and be part of it and it almost does feel a little bit like midwifery care in almost sort of like helping a woman to do to do something in terms of sort of like helping her with the seeding and you know um and, and stuff like that but is this something that women are just going to do regardless like you know if, if, if midwives and we don't get on board and say you know well this is how we're going to do it and we're going to get guidelines and we're going to get policies to sort of do this safely as in you say like have proper screening and and things like that then are women going to just sort of wait till they get home and do it anyway so Ooh, interesting we need to think about all of it don't we you know if we if we don't actually do the guidelines and policies our baby's going to be readmitted and we're not going to know that the mothers have done that you yeah know? Oh, That's so like, like really bed scary. sharing, if you just say, don't do it, people will do it in an uninformed way. I hadn't even thought of that. And now that you've said it, I'm like, yeah, because that, that worries me a little bit. It's going to be one to watch for the future. And I guess we might revisit this topic. Mm. I hope we bring it back to sort of like, you know, the skin to skin and the and, and the breastfeeding rather than, you know, roll off down the hill about swabs. and. Yeah, I, I can see where you're coming from on that. Mm. Thank you very much for sharing your thoughts about this. It's been really interesting. Very welcome. Thank you for giving me some time that you can't really spare. And I'll get back to work. Okay. Thanks a lot. Bye I'll bye. speak to you soon. Bye. bye. Whew. What do you think? Well, you know, you don't have to think it in private. Let us know on Facebook and Twitter. Get in touch. So that's facebook.com slash sprogcast and at sprogcast on Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. And when we do hear from you, we'll reply. We promise we always do. And we might read you out here on the show. Like we're reading um, a tweet from Julie Hom at midwife underscore gem, who told us she just listened to the twin podcast. And as a midwife and a mum of one baby plus one baby, this resonated. She had her twins in the pool in the hospital, which was really nice. Yeah, you not listen to Virginia Howes, listen to that episode. It's fabulous. Yeah. So that was episode 11, wasn't it? Yep. And then um, we had quite a few people um, on the attachment parenting episode right. responding with their, their thoughts. So Susie Colbeck um, really enjoyed the episode. Um, whilst I have no issue with most of the concepts of attachment parenting, I think some parents feel they have to come down on either that side or as completely into routines. Yeah. Both can be equally zealous, which is also off-putting. A recent group I worked with antenatally had never heard of either kind of parenting. And Helen Allmark added to that um, from Oliver James. And Oliver James is... Um, really quite controversial isn't he but one of the things he does is identify different types of mums and one of his type of mums is the flexi mum so picking up bits from both ends both dogmas and muddling through as best they can and to be honest that's that's the majority of us isn't it i think so yeah i think you're right are we going to give anybody are we going to give people a bit of a heads up on what we might be talking about next time well i'd like to do an episode about sex 
So, sex in what context? Um, well, our usual context: birth and so, parents. Of course, of course. Sorry. Breastfeeding. Where was I at? Where was I at that moment? I don't yeah, know. Okay. Right. A bit Freudian. So, there. sex in the context of pregnancy and birth. Um, and I haven't really come up with a, a great angle for it yet, but I'm sure between us we can. That sounded yeah. rude as well. This is going to be quite tough. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good, Karen. Cool. Well, I'll see if I can make that happen. If you have any suggestions or comments, please, please, please get in touch via Facebook or Twitter. That's facebook.com slash Sprogcast and at Sprogcast on Twitter. Thanks for listening. Um, goodbye. Yeah, goodbye from me. You've been listening to Sprogcast with Mark Harris and Karen Hall. Sprogcast is supported by Pinter and Martin. For all your pregnancy, birth, breastfeeding and parenting reading, check out pinterandmartin.com and enter the code SPROGCAST for an additional 10% off. Sprogcast is produced by Karen Hall with technical assistance by Pete Hall and our branding is provided by Nick Hilditch.